0: Opening day of the Major League Baseball season may as well be a local holiday in Chicago. The day I, as a boy growing up in the North Shore suburbs, look forward to nearly as much as my birthday or the last day of school. After a long cold winter during which the sun would often have set before I even got home from school, the temperature would plummet below zero and measuring snowfall sometimes required a yardstick. Opening day signified the arrival of spring. Warmer weather, longer days, and of course, baseball season. The Cubs, for the White Sox, and for Little League. But on April 4th, 2005, opening day played second banana to the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship game between North Carolina and the University of Illinois, which was vying for the title for the first and so only time in program history. The Illini's lost to the Tar Heels overshadowed the start of the season for another often unsung and overlooked team, the Chicago White Sox. That 2005 team matched the 1927 New York Yankees by leading its division straight through from opening day to the final game of the regular season, before blitzing a path to its first World Series championship in 88 years. I'm your host, Jake Williams, and this is Wrecking the Toy Department, where we'll explore the void left by the postponement cancellation of all major live sports events in the United States, and the reason why sports means so much to us. On this episode, we'll take a look back at the 2005 Chicago White Sox. A team that's been largely overlooked and 15 years later relatively forgotten compared to the likes of the 2004 Boston Red Sox and 2016 Chicago Cubs teams that ended similarly lengthy championship droughts. With no live sports to watch, the 2005 White Sox are the type of sports story we can't experience right now. So to help fill that void, we're going to take a look back at that giant of a team starting with one name that sums up the White Sox of 15 years ago better than any other, AJ Pierzynski. Entering the 05 season, the 28-year-old Pierzynski was breaking camp with his third team in three years. After the 2003 season, the Minnesota Twins, the team Pierzynski played with for his first six Major League seasons, traded him to the San Francisco Giants. This despite the fact that in his last two seasons with the team, Pierzynski was an All-Star in 2002 and 8th in the American League with a three twelve batting average the following year. But after six years, Pierzynski was about to become too expensive for a smaller market team with little payroll flexibility and a star in the making in 21-year-old catcher Joe Maurer, who was tearing up the minor leagues. The then 26-year-old Pierzinski attracted a lot of interest from other teams, and eventually the Twins shipped him to the Giants in return for three players, including closer Joe Nathan, who'd saved 246 games for Minnesota over the next six seasons. The Giants did not make out nearly so well. Pierzynski led the league in double plays, grounding into 27 over the course of the 2004 season. Before the end of July, an anonymous teammate had publicly referred to Pierzynski as a cancer, and multiple Giants told the Oakland Tribune they wouldn't mind seeing him get traded. While Pierzynski stayed with the team for the rest of the year, on December 16th, two weeks shy of his 28th birthday, the catcher the Giants had chipped off three players for was unceremoniously released. For its investment, San Francisco ended up getting nothing in return three weeks later the chicago white Sox signed the catcher who in an anonymous 2012 poll of major league players done by men's journal would be named by his peers as the game's most hated player in that survey of 100 major league players 34 chose piercinski no other player received more than 10 votes his reputation was at least somewhat earned there was the brawl after piercinski crashed into cubs catcher michael barrett in 2006.
1: got a fastball and lifts a fly ball in a short left field Pierzinski wanting to know, am I going? He is going. Here comes a throw by Merton. It is a collision at the plate. And Kierczynski not only bangs into Barrett, bangs onto the plate, and here they go. And now both dugouts empty behind home plate. I mean, there is some hooking going on in the bottom of two piles. Kierczynski ran right through Barrett and then slammed his hand on home plate and barrett came after him
0: that courtesy of wgn and then there was the most memorable single play of the entire 2005 season the infamous drop third strike in the bottom of the ninth inning of game two of the alcs against the angels i have followed major league baseball for more than 35 years and i have never seen a play like that one and i can't think of another player who would have given the circumstances thought to try such a move let alone blow it off successfully That play, like the 2005 White Sox, and the start of what would become an incredibly successful eight-year run for Pierczynski on the south side of Chicago, seemed to come out of nowhere. Five years earlier, in 2000, the White Sox were swept out of the division series by the Seattle Mariners. In the succeeding four years, they were a middling team at best, never reaching the playoffs. Another similar season was expected for the White Sox in 2005. Not a single prognosticator baseball prospectus had the team finishing higher than third place in the AL Central. From my vantage point, these predictions had to do with what turned out to be an incorrect assessment of the White Sox starting rotation. Outside of Mark Burley, who was the backbone of the staff for a decade, and Freddie Garcia, whom the White Sox acquired after a bidding war shortly before the 2004 trading deadline, there was John Garland, a 25-year-old kid who could at best be described as an average pitcher. Then there was Jose Contreras and Orlando El Duque Hernandez, who were thought to be considerably older than their media guide age listings of 33 and 39 years old, respectively. In 2004, Contreras led the American League with 17 wild pitches and had a whip of nearly 1.5. Hernandez, slated as the number 5 starter, had missed the entire 2003 season and starred just 15 games and thrown 84 innings in 2004. Putting El Duque in the starting rotation seemed essentially like the White Sox, with no better option, were simply hoping for the best than making a strategic winning decision. Perhaps also it's because the White Sox have always been unsung and overlooked, playing in the shadow of the Chicago Cubs. In 2003, during which they drew just fewer than 3 million fans, the Cubs finished one win shy of their first World Series appearance in 58 years. A year later they drew 3.2 million fans for a season during which they crashed out of postseason contention this season's final week. During those same two seasons the White Sox finished in second place in their division twice, both times drawing fewer than 2 million fans. On the day the Sox started the regular season, not only was the University of Illinois playing for its first ever NCAA basketball championship, with the Boston Red Sox receiving their rings to celebrate their 2004 World Series championship, which had ended a drought of 86 years. Somehow, that accomplishment is still thought of as much more historically significant than Chicago's 2005 title run, their first in 88 years. In fact, after the Cubs won the World Series in 2016, their first title in 108 years, ESPN's graphic showing the longest championship droughts in professional sports history listed in that 2004 Red Sox team snapping an 86-year streak as second behind the Cubs. The White Sox in their 88-year drought were simply forgotten by the worldwide leader in sports. So perhaps no surprise that the White Sox, picked to finish either third or fourth in their division by the experts, took over first place for good on opening day by beating the Cleveland Indians behind a masterful pitching performance from Mark Burley.
1: That's nine up and nine down for Burley. He gone. That is 12 up, 12 down for Burley. There's a chopper. Ball is off Peralta as Pauley scores and the Sox lead it one to nothing. There's a chopper, good. Yes! A beautiful play by Ross Glode As we mentioned, was guarding the line Had to go hard to his right And he got there So the Sox take the opener here In 5 one nothing. Those
0: highlights courtesy of WGN After that first win, the White Sox would not spend One single day outside first place In the AL Central Five weeks into the season, the White Sox had a record of 24-7 And were already running away With their division He
1: gone! He knew it! Dunn Garland, his second straight four-hit shutout over a good-hitting Detroit Tiger ball club, as the Sox run their record to 18 and 7. Garland 5-0. For the switch hitter, uh, hits one high and deep to right field. Don't think the park's going to hold this one. Home run for Carl Everett. deals. Oh, hit to deep right. And it will also get. Start the second, and it's four to two. That ball hit way back. Stretch, get up, and will you can put it on the board? Yes! Line shot, home run by Jermaine Guy. Number ten, and the Sox win it five to four.
0: Those highlights courtesy of WGN in Major League Baseball. The team coasted into the All-Star break twenty-eight games over five hundred, with a fifty-seven and twenty-nine record. Until August, the White Sox just kept winning at an even faster clip away from Chicago than at home. If they needed pitching to win, they got it. Defense? Yep. Offense? You bet. But then they went into a tailspin and dropped a season-worst seven consecutive games during a mid-August swoon. Their division lead went from 13 games to just seven, and they were struggling to get back on track against the New York Yankees. The Sox snapped back in an emphatic manner with three straight home runs off future Hall of Fame pitcher Randy Johnson.
1: That ball hit deep in the right field, stretch, stretch, get on back there, he looks up, you can put it on the board, yes, Got a Kanahiro Iguchi, his 12th homer, and this game is tied at one. That ball hit hard in the right center field, stretch, get up, Walmart looks up, you can put it on the board, Yeah. back-to-back homers by Iguchi and Rowan, and the Sox lead it 2-1, That ball hit deep. Way back, he looks up. You can put it on the ball. Yes. Back to back to back. And it is 3 1 Sox. You don't see that every day.
0: Those highlights, courtesy of Major League Baseball. As September drew to a close, the White Sox were closing in on what would be just the third 99 win season in franchise history and the chance to head to the playoffs for the first time since 2000. Now, how the White Sox got to the point where they had a shot at a club record-tying 100 wins and a playoff berth is still something of a mystery. Ozzie Gian was in just his second season as a major league manager, and perhaps the best player in franchise history, Hall of Famer Frank Thomas, played in just 34 games, none after July 20th. In a starting lineup featuring five players who struck out at least 99 times, nobody had a better batting average than Scott Pesednik's 290. Entering the season, just two of their five starting pitchers could have been considered to be in their prime, with two, Contreras and Hernandez, definitely viewed as trending toward the back end of their MLB careers. Their bullpen consisted of a bunch of no-names, and its most important position, closer, started off as an unmitigated disaster. The incumbent, 36-year-old Shingo Takatsu, allowed 30 hits including 9 home runs and 16 walks in less than 30 innings pitched, and saw his ERA balloon to nearly 6.0 before being benched for good following a July 16th appearance in which he allowed three runs and walked two batters in just two-thirds of an inning. The White Sox released him 16 days later. His replacement, Dustin Hermanson, racked up 34 saves in 57 appearances and had a whip of barely more than one. The perfect ninth inning shutdown Stopper until he suffered a season-ending back injury in late September. This would leave the White Sox with rookie closer Bobby Jenks, who instead of being a giant question mark was instead practically unhittable, starting with his division clinching save against the Detroit Tigers on September 29th.
1: Line drive caught at first, and that's the ball game. They are celebrating on the south side. Back in the postseason for the first time since 2000, the Chicago White Sox are the 2005 American League Central Division Champions.
0: Those highlights courtesy of WGN. I had seen the White Sox reach the playoffs three times previously, with what I thought were better teams. So despite the 99 wins and the evident mounds of proof that they were a contender, I tried to tamp down my own expectations. Until 2016, a Chicago baseball team reaching the postseason was a rare and usually short-term experience, so I settled in for what I assumed would be a fun five- or six-day baseball respite before it'd be time to cheer on what I thought would be another hapless Chicago Bears team, coming off a last-place 5-11 and finish in 2004. My mind changed after watching a Game 1 blowout that saw Scott Pesednik hit his first home run since September 30, 2004.
1: Tenerco.
2: Deep to left, back it goes, didn't miss this one, gone! Canerco's had two straight seasons of
1: 40-plus home runs. He almost hit one in his first at bat, he hits one right there. There's a drive, deep right, fail! This is gonna go! That's the first home run he has hit this season! A three-run shot for Patsudnik, and his home run comes in the Division Series! He waited for postseason play, didn't he? Tony Graffanino is one for three facing Polite today. The pitch, a long one to left center field. Put Sednik back to the wall, and he reaches and makes the catch for a White Sox winner. The White Sox have won game one of this division series, 14-2 over the Red Sox.
0: Those highlights, courtesy of ESPN. Freddie Garcia manages five innings in game three leaving after allowing a homer to Manny Ramirez to start the bottom of the sixth inning. His replacement, reliever Damaso Marte, in a word, was awful, allowing a single to trot Nixon before walking Bill Muller and John Olrude to load the bases with nobody out. Suddenly, the White Sox were clinging to a quite tenuous 4-3 lead at Fenway Park. Into the madhouse of mayhem stepped El Duque. Why Ozzie Guillen thought this move would work, I had and still have no idea. As Fernandez finishes some warm up pitches, I foresaw a disaster.
1: Veritek skies it. Canerco calls Brzezinski off, makes the grab. Big out there. Pops him up as well. A calls for it at short. They How are high fiving at home plate right there. I think Brzezinski talked him in to that breaking ball. 3 2 pitch. Oh, he gets him to go. And the White Sox, El Duque goes charging off as well he should. He comes in with the bases loaded and gets Veritek, Graffinino, and Damon. Hernandez
0: would retire 9 of the 10 batters he faced before giving way to Bobby Jenks, who would have the chance to pitch the Sox into the American League Championship Series.
1: Gucci, Canerco, the Red Sox dream to repeat is over and the Chicago White Sox have come into Fenway Park and completed a sweep here in the AL Division Series.
0: Those highlights courtesy of ESPN. Standing between the White Sox and their first World Series appearance in 46 years were the Los Angeles Angels of Anaheim a team that, not even a month earlier, had swept a three-game series at Comiskey Park. In those three games, the Angels annihilated Mark Burley, John Garland, and Orlando Hernandez. In a combined 14 innings pitch, that trio allowed 16 earned runs on 25 hits, including six that were home runs. The 2005 Angels, who defeated the Yankees to reach the ALCS, featured Hall of Fame outfielder Vladimir Guerrero, who at age 30 was still definitively in his prime. 21-game winner Bartolo Colon and a lockdown closer in 23-year-old Francisco Rodriguez, otherwise known as K-Rod, who would saved 45 regular season games in 2005, three years after helping pitch the team to its first World Series title in franchise history. The Angels had won 90-plus games for the third time in four years and were in the midst of an eight-year run behind manager Mike Socha in which they went to the playoffs six times, reached the LCS three times, and won the 2002 World Series over Barry Bonds and the San Francisco Giants. Picking up where they left off a month earlier, the Angels, behind Paul Byrd and Rodriguez, defeated the White Sox 3-2 in Chicago to take a 1-0 series lead. Game two was just as tight, with Mark Burley giving up just one run on five hits through nine innings.
1: Right down the middle to get Quinlan for the fourth strike out of the night for Burley. And Mark Burley can't do much more than he's done here tonight. Here is Erstad, who's trying to launch one to center field. He got under it. Rowan is there. And another quick inning for Mark Burley. And Cabrera hits it into deep left field. Back is Nick at the wall. Burley can't do any more than he's doing tonight, including catching a pop-up.
0: But though the White Sox knocked the Angels starter Jared Washburn out of the game in the fifth inning, they had put just one run on the board. The teams entered the bottom of the ninth inning with the score tied at one. With two out and nobody on, A.J. Brzezinski stepped to the plate. Five pitches later, Angels reliever Kelvin Escobar threw a pitch that everyone but Brzezinski assumed was strike three.
1: Escobar, another strikeout. Pierzynski is going down to first. The home plate umpire has now made a call and safe, and the Angels are already off the field. The home plate umpire said that ball hit into the ground. And that the tag needed to be made, or a throw down to first, or now is he going to bring Pierzynski back to the plate? He's not. Pierzynski is going to go down to first, and Mike Sosha wants to know what the heck just happened. Doug Eddings is the home plate umpire. And the
2: Angels were walking off the field. Well, if Josh Paul made the catch, which he did, then it's a strikeout. Krasinski's thinking, hey, why not? The home plate umpire couldn't make the call. And this might be the best thing for instant replay in baseball that's happened and occurred this postseason because clearly... He caught the ball, and the catcher knows whether it's a short hop or you catch it cleanly. Whether there's leather between the dirt and the ball. He 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 caught that ball cleanly. That's a third out. He called him out, first of all. Well, he called him out because it was a strikeout. But then Brzezinski ran to first base thinking that he would get the call with the ball in the dirt, and it wasn't in the dirt seems to be we talked about it earlier that the third base umpire would have the best view that's Ed Rapuano I agree with that and basically they should ask the third base
1: umpire I to see so. If,
2: so they can get the play right yeah
1: Jerry Crawford is explaining you could see so say say put his hand up to call him out my guys are coming off the field the ball didn't hit the dirt Eddings the home plate umpire thought it did and Pierzinski give him credit He at least went down to first base, and as you said, Tim, thought, what the heck, I'll give it a shot, try to get down there, and Eddings let him go, and the ninth inning continued.
0: In the Chicago Tribune the day after the game, reporter Jimmy Greenfield wrote that Angels catcher Josh Paul could have changed the outcome of the game, and to my mind the series, had he been more conservative in his decision after catching the ball rather than rolling the ball back to the mound as a catcher would normally do after an inning ending strikeout greenfield wrote that because the pitch was low to the point of possibly scraping the dirt as he caught it paul should have tagged Pierzinski to make sure he was out or barring that thrown the ball down to first base to ensure the third out of the inning instead he did neither greenfield wrote that it was his belief after the game that the umpires did the right thing on the field despite the mess the game became from there But, he wrote that in the postgame press availability, the umpires decided to cover their butts rather than explain their decision-making process on the field and how it led to Pierzynski being ruled safe at first base. So there was truly never a full explanation for why the ninth inning continued. But because it did, Escobar lost control of the inning and the game. And with it, the Angels lost their chance to take a commanding series lead in extra innings.
1: And that's into the left field corner. This ball. The White Sox have won, and this only begins what will be an argument. Total frustration and disgust on the part of the Angels on that call, which allowed the ninth inning to continue. Ozuna steals second, and Creedy wins it with a ball off the left field wall.
0: Those highlights, courtesy of Fox Sports, and with Creedy's walk off, Burley had what would be the start of an absolutely incredible, almost unbelievable run for the White Sox starting staff. After Burley, John and Garland pitched a complete game win in game three, followed by another complete game victory from Freddie Garcia in game four.
1: One ball, two strikes, one on, two out. Garcia to the right side, a Gucci to his left. The dominance continues. Garcia wraps up the third consecutive complete game for the Chicago White Sox starting staff.
0: Through four games, Burley, Garland, Garcia, and Jose Contreras had pitched all but two-thirds of an inning, and the White Sox had three straight complete game wins. In a new era of specialization in pitch counts, the idea that any team would have three straight complete games, in the playoffs no less, was near on science fiction. Heading into Game 5, the White Sox, with the chance to go to the World Series for the first time in 46 years, sent Jose Contreras to the mound. 114 pitches later, the White Sox had a four straight complete game victory and a ticket to the World Series.
1: the first. The White Sox have won the pennant. Jose Contreras goes all nine.
0: And the White Sox are going to the World Series. Those highlights, courtesy of Fox Sports. That four game run, even more so than the series to follow, when the White Sox would contend for their first World Series title in 88 years, was THE most memorable part of the 2005 season. To put it into perspective, at the beginning of the season, the staff was perceived as the team's weak link. Seven months later, during a one-week span in October, Mark Burley, Freddie Garcia, Jose Contreras, and John Garland all pitched like some of the greatest Hall of Famers ever to take to the mound. And heading into the World Series, the White Sox pitching staff looked as though it could have a significant edge over a dominant Houston Astros staff featuring Roger Clemens, Roy Oswald, and Andy Pettit. The Astros' starting lineup, too, was better than the White Sox, featuring future Hall of Famers Jeff Bagwell and Craig Biggio. The only player in the White Sox starting lineup entering the World Series with even a chance of making the Hall of Fame was Paul Canerco. Yet there they were playing Game 1 in Chicago a White Sox team that hadn't won the World Series in 88 years versus an Astros squad making its first World Series appearance in its 44-year franchise history. Roger Clemens started for the Astros, but less than two innings and just 53 pitches later, he was gone after aggravating a hamstring injury. Reliever Wandy Rodriguez took over. those highlights courtesy of Fox Sports. Heading into Game 2, the White Sox had allowed more than three runs just once in nine postseason games. Mark Burley, who'd been the team's best starting pitcher in the regular season, had allowed four runs in seven innings in Chicago's 5-4 win over Boston in Game 2 of the ALDS. Burley struggled once again, allowing four runs in seven innings. Meanwhile, Andy Pettit gave up just two runs, and when Dan Wheeler relieved him to start the bottom of the seventh, Houston led 4-2. After giving up a double to Juan Uribe, sandwiched between a pop out and a strikeout, Wheeler walked Tadahito Iguchi and hit Jermaine Dye to load the bases. Dye was the last batter Wheeler would face, and in came Chad Qualls to pitch to ALCS MVP Paul Canerco. It took just one pitch for this to happen.
1: And he rips one in the left. Canerco, grand slam!
0: Those of us watching went wild thinking that with a 6-4 lead through seven innings, the bullpen featuring rookie phenom Bobby Jenks could finish this out without a hitch. But it did not work out that way. Instead, Jenks allowed two runs in the top of the ninth, and the Sox came to bat with the game tied at six. Up to the plate stepped Scott Patsednik, who'd gone 568 regular season at-bats without a home run in 2005, before hitting one in Game 1 of the ALDS against Boston. In his major league career, he hit just 42 home runs in 3,900 regular season at bats, or a pace of one every 93 trips to the plate.
1: Podsednik hits one to deep right center field. Back at the wall. This ball is gone. Podsednik goes deep. His second home run of the postseason. And the White
0: Sox win it 7-6. Those highlights courtesy of Fox Sports. Two nights later, the teams face off again, this time in Houston. I don't remember much of what happened in the first almost five hours of what turned out to be, to that point, the longest game played in World Series history. Not that John Garland, who'd been so dominant in complete game victory over the Angels in his previous start, spotted the Astros a 4-0 lead through four innings nor that the White Sox put up five runs on the top of the fifth against Astros starter Roy Oswald, one of the most dominant pitchers of the early odds. Houston would tie the game at five in the bottom of the eighth, and I don't remember that part either. Sometime around one in the morning, my then-girlfriend, now wife, and I returned to her apartment after a night out in a show that she really liked me three months into our relationship. a decidedly non-sports fan stayed up past 2 a.m. Eastern time to watch the drama that would unfold in the 14th inning. Jeff Blum, who'd had just one previous plate appearance in that 2005 postseason, and just 99 regular season at bats for the White Sox in his one half season with the team, ready for the pitch from Ezekiel Estacio, with two outs and nobody on base.
1: Blum hits it into right down the line. It is gone. Jeff Blum, the former Astro, goes deep, and here in the 14th inning, the White Sox take a 6-5 lead.
0: The Sox tacked on an insurance run and went to the bottom of the inning, leading 7-5. to Damaso Marte, Chicago's 8th pitcher of the night, got two outs before an error put Ben on the corners. In a surprising move, manager Ozzie Guillen yanked Marte and replaced him with Mark Burley, who started Game 2 two nights earlier and hadn't made a relief appearance since his rookie year in 2000. Apparently, Burley was even more surprised. Two nights earlier, he'd thrown 100 pitches over 7 innings. In a player's tribune article published 12 years later he said quote he would have bet my house unquote that he wasn't going to pitch without assumption in his head he said he kicked back to enjoy the game with some beer and he wrote each time he'd go to get one he'd double check with his coaches that they wouldn't need him to pitch they told him they wouldn't he wrote but by the 11th inning he said he had a feeling he might be needed three innings later and by his count three beers in Burley was on the mound trying to preserve a game three victory.
1: A break and a chance to do something about a seven to five game in the bottom of the fourteenth as Mark Burley deals with Adam Everett. A one one pick. Everett pops it up on the infield for Uribe. The White Sox are up three games to nothing. A fourteen inning game and seven to five Chicago.
0: Those highlights courtesy of Fox Sports. I can't say for sure now, 15 years later, that I would stay up past 2 in the morning to watch a championship event, even one involving a favorite team. But I did that night, and it was worth every minute. The next night, I was out at a bar near Times Square in New York, one that no longer exists, at least not in the form which it existed then, the Rum House at the Hotel Edison. The Rum House's present iteration is as a copper and old wood bar featuring live music and inventive cocktails. Back then, there was no copper. The wood could have used some standing, and the most inventive cocktail I remember ordering was a gin and tonic. The live entertainment was a pianist who, as far as I know, played for tips. When we went there, my friends, who were all a few years younger than me, and all of us are now somewhere in our 40s instead of mid to late 20s, would tease me by requesting they, she play Frank Sinatra's Young at Heart. But that night, there was no music, just Game 4 of the World Series, and in anticipation that the series in an 88 year drought for the White Sox was about to end.
2: Can the Houston Astros come back and win this thing? Can they? Of course they can, but consider what confronts them. I mean, the White Sox have been playing a relentless brand of baseball in the postseason. It's been so good that a lot of people feel that they could beat any team from any era. And all you have to do is pick a category. Pitching, defense, base running, pinch hitting. Consider this. The guys who have won the last two games with home runs, Scott Puttsednik and Jeff Blum last night, had one home run this year. One. And they have two in the last two games.
1: Tonight for the Houston Astros, it's simple. Get a win and force game five tomorrow night.
0: Astros starter Brandon Backey pitched about as well as the Astros could have hoped for, giving up just five hits and striking out seven through seven innings. But Freddie Garcia matched him pitch for pitch, and the two starters both left a scoreless game after seven innings. There
1: are over 42,000 people packed in here, hoping that Lidge can get Jermaine Die. That's up the middle and the White Sox take the lead. A two-out RBI hit by Jermaine Dye and Chicago is on top here in the top of the eighth.
0: It was a white knuckle ride from there. Wondering, hoping, nearly praying, the White Sox bullpen could hang on.
1: Astros still needing that hit. Burke pops it up. Left side. Will it stay in play? The catch is made by Uribe—an unbelievable grab. Ending up
2: in the crowd as he pulls in out number two in the ninth. What a remarkable play! With his back facing first base. Catching it and then tumbling into the crowd. My goodness. I have
0: since seen Juan Uribe diving into the stands at Minute Maid Park, and the catch was truly spectacular. But I don't remember it at all. The only part of this game I actually remember is the final, series-clinching play.
1: Tying run at second, two out, Palmero over the head of Jenks, Uribe charges, throws, out! And the White Sox have won the World Series! Juan Uribe with a play, charging it, throwing it, and the White Sox celebrate their first title in 88 years.
0: Those highlights, courtesy of Fox Sports. I'm not sure about the rest of the bar, but I nearly lost my mind at a minute past midnight. The World Series is over, and the White Sox were the champions. It didn't matter that it was a Wednesday, a work night. I called my best friend in Chicago. He's the lifelong White Sox fan. I'm the die-hard Cubs fan. But in that moment, it didn't matter. We were two Chicagoans celebrating an occasion we never thought would happen. As we move through month three without professional team sports in America, this is another example of what we've been missing. The shared group experience of seeing something you never thought would happen. Watching a team overachieve and somehow come away with the tightest World Series sweep in Major League history. Who would have ever thought on April 4th, 2005, that the White Sox would match the Murderer's Row Yankees team of 1927. Yet, like that historic squad, Chicago led its division wire-to-wire, and they lost just one postseason game of the 12 they played. It was unbelievable, and for a year, the Second City's second team was the top dog, the champion, and even a fan of the hated Northsiders could be won over, if only for a short time. This episode of Wrecking the Toy Department was written, voiced, produced, and edited by me, Jake Williams. Thank you for listening.